Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program where we put the world of motoring and transport under the microscope. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories including the latest car sales figures, a new Nissan Patrol and a court in Germany says that Tesla's multi-step procedure to vary the speed of your windscreen wipers is bad but it can't be used as an excuse for having a crash. And we have three interviews. We chat in more detail to Jed Bulmer about the latest Nissan Patrol and the market for very large four-wheel drives. Dave Jones tells us about an Australian product that puts luminescent line-marking material on the road to glow at night. And Brian Smith gives us his assessment of evoking the supernatural to enhance transport safety. Previous programs are available at drivenmedia.com.au or as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. And there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City. So as always, let's get the program going. First, we'll have the news. The Nissan Patrol, an upper-large SUV, has had a makeover of its current 7th generation model, and continues to push towards more comfort and features. It still comes with a petrol engine, a big 5.6-litre V8, with 298 kilowatts and 560 newton metres of torque, matched to a 7-speed automatic transmission. There are two grades, and both now include the safety technologies of intelligent emergency braking, forward collision warning, and rear cross-traffic alert. Excluding drive-away costs, the base model is just under $79,000 and the top-of-the-line TIL is nearly $93,400. The first patrol was launched in 1951 as a stubby, boxy-shaped vehicle similar to a Land Rover Defender at the time, but it is now a very good touring and towing vehicle. But has it become soft in off-road conditions? Jed Bulmer, the motoring editor of RACQ, doesn't think so. I find it incredibly interesting that they are still very, very capable off-road and uh, I, I would have no doubts about a Nissan Patrol's ability to, to get out and you know, tackle some of the roughest terrain you can, you can throw at it. Vehicle sales for the month of June are up compared to last year, but only by 0.4%. The Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries says this is a strong result that reflects the typical trends of sales in the last month of the financial year. But the figures are not quite as typical as some may think. In the four years before COVID, the June figures were typically up 30% compared to the previous month of May. The June 2020 figure was 83% higher than May of that year. This year it's only 10%. Small passenger and small SUVs showed the biggest percentage increase and the strongest sector for growth was the rental car industry, which had cut stock significantly in 2020. In our recent test of the latest Tesla Model 3, we expressed frustration that to change the speed of the windscreen wipers required a two-step procedure on the large touchscreen. While Tesla says that the car has rain detector, so you rarely need to change the speed, we found the speed of the wipers that the car determined from the amount of rain on the windscreen was never fully to our liking and took a while to respond in situations such as coming out of a tunnel into significant rainfall. 
Now, a German court has agreed that this is a problem. A local court in Kazurua has acknowledged that the Tesla setup required significant more attention from the driver than a traditional lever setup, but the driver who had had a crash and tried to use the poor design as an excuse was still issued a fine and a one-month driving ban for not keeping his eyes on the road. The hypercar business is about creating the most high-tech and high-performance sports cars for the super-rich. The Volkswagen Group acquired the Bugatti name and built a number of variations of a 16-cylinder engine with four turbochargers, firstly calling it the Veyron and then upgrading it to the Chiron. But it's hard to see how this could be a hero car for people who bought an everyday Volkswagen. The latest Chiron costs between 3 to $3.9 million US, and can reach a speed of 480 kilometres an hour in the right conditions. And while they might sell a few hundred, the sheer cost of such advanced engineering design and then building the cars makes this a questionable business case. Now, Volkswagen has said that enough is enough. Porsche and Rimac have agreed to set up a joint venture that incorporates Bucati. Volkswagen is not giving up completely, as Porsche is part of their stable, but perhaps they are distancing themselves from such conspicuous consumption. And that has been the news. When the Nissan Patrol first came out in 1951, it was undoubtedly made for rough-and-tumble work. It was the Japanese equivalent of what started out as the Land Rover 110, which became known as the Defender, which in itself was the British answer to the Jeep. The first patrol, square, stubby and at most competent in off-road conditions. The Nissan Patrol has got bigger and recently in particular it's got very comfortable, but has it gone soft? Now Jed Bulmer has a wealth of experience in the motor industry, having written and managed publications from wheels to motor to street machine, the list goes on. I've just tested the patrol, but he has had many a good journey in them. G'day, Jed. G'day, David. What are your memories of the first patrols that you tested on, which, of course, doesn't go back to 1951? I'm not suggesting that. But do you remember some of your earlier trips in this vehicle? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I got into uh, motoring journalism. My first job was on a a Sydney-based 4x4 magazine called Overlander magazine, and in those days, the patrol, the GQ patrol, was uh, a relatively new vehicle. It had just replaced the MQ. It was an excellent vehicle, really quite ahead of its time with all-coil suspension, four-wheel disc brakes at a time when Land Cruisers were still rolling around on leaf springs. and were... So the patrol was quite advanced by that stage, mm. the GQ. It was a really nice vehicle to drive back in those days, comparative to some of the harder riding, um, less keen handling models that were around, yeah. was getting pretty big there and still very competent off-road. Is that the case? Yeah, absolutely. Look, the GQ was a very, very good vehicle off-road, had lots of capability and was purpose-built. That was its main design attribute. You could get some of the luxury features, uh, what we would call luxury features then, but nothing like what you can get in the current patrol, which is a a very opulently and well-appointed vehicle. I think the top of the line one has wood panelling on the inside. That says we have moved a bit of a way, doesn't it? (laughs) 
you go back even earlier than the GQ, I think the uh, even prior to the MQ, one of the early patrols was renowned. When you got out, you had to be careful getting out of the driver's seat lest you burnt your leg on the exhaust pipe, which was hidden just under the uh, the sill as you stepped out of the vehicle. So we've come a long way from those crude old uh, crude old rigs. That was almost a badge of honour, was it? Yeah, I think it was. It was a bit of a badge of honour to have that burn on your leg somewhere. <laughs> you got out of your patrol, yeah. One of the indications of perhaps the trend is that the patrol now only has a petrol engine. What do you think is pushing that? Yeah, look, that was a really fairly controversial move when this current generation, it's called the Y62, this this current model that we have here. It's the seventh generation patrol. It came out in 2013 and... They facelifted it a couple of years ago in 2019. But, yeah, the Y62 was the first patrol in many, quite a few years to arrive with a petrol engine exclusively of 5.6 litre V8, no, no less, petrol V8. And that raised plenty of eyebrows because by that stage, you know, if you think back um, eight years ago, we were fairly wedded to, to diesel. We still are, but I think diesel's starting to lose a little bit of its luster for a variety of reasons in some categories and the reason for it I believe is that the patrol's major markets are the Middle East and the US that's where the bulk of these vehicles are sold and those markets they really aren't interested in diesel vehicles of that type. I just had a look at the sales figures for June and you know that 200 series Land Cruiser outsells the patrol by a ratio of about 10 to 1, and that's exclusively diesel. So that pretty much tells you what Australian customers want right now. There's a whole reasons uh, for the second-hand market doing well, but is there also perhaps in this case a desire to get an older-style four-wheel drive, which you're not afraid to scratch? Yeah, there's a very healthy market in um, in used patrols and land cruisers and young. you see a lot of young people fitting them out with, you know, all of the aftermarket gear, bigger wheels and tyres, winches, bulls, bull bars, light bars. They spend a lot of money on them to make them even more capable for the bush. Towing and other characteristics, is that got to be an important part of a, a vehicle like the patrol? In fact, it's probably one of the major reasons why people would buy this current model it's a superb tow vehicle, to be quite honest. I mean, a lot of people would balk at the uh, the fact that it is a petrol V8 and it's obviously going to be thirstier than a um, a diesel. But if you can handle the cost of, you know, running it, it tows beautifully. I've towed a pretty heavy caravan behind one and it um, it's, a, it's a lovely, strong, smooth V8 engine, great transmission, sits on the road really solidly. It's It's a nice tow vehicle, definitely. It clearly, though, has a presence on the road. Stylistically, it always looks to me like a vehicle that would sit very comfortably in, on the streets in LA. It's got a fair bit of, <laughs> a fair bit of swagger about it. Sounds like a proper V8. It's got plenty of street presence. Perhaps the reflection of things changing. A colleague of mine has an old Defender of which he wears earplugs when he drives down the highway. <laughs> The new Land Cruiser is due out. Where do you think they'll pitch in that part of the market? Toyota's already announced that the new 300 series, as it's known, which arrives here in, in Q3, so we're pretty much in that now. So it's imminent. It should be here within the next you know month or two, or delivery should be starting. Um, they've got a twin-turbo V6 diesel is the only powertrain announced for that model so far. So Toyota's sticking with diesel at this stage. 
there were reports that they might have been doing a petrol hybrid V8 or V6, but they haven't confirmed that at this stage. So, um, but in terms of the specification, I think the 200 series has been a very successful vehicle for Toyota. It's got about 90% market share in the category, which it sells against, which is really just it and the patrol. So I don't think they'll change the formula too much. You know, mm. it'll be a new vehicle. It'll be a better vehicle. But I think they'll they'll continue on with their similar specification. You'll be able to get a basic, you know, GX model, which is, um, you know, cloth seats and uh, probably possibly a, more of a, not a vinyl floor, but, but a bit more durable. And then going all the way up to a Sahara with all the bells and whistles. The current range kicks in at about 81,000 and goes to about 124 so uh, that's that's recommended retail so you'd probably think they're going to bump those prices a bit do you think these bigger off-road four-wheel drive with with that capability do you think they will be the last or certainly not the first in terms of electrification be it hybrid or full battery We'll certainly see hybridisation, I would suggest, of the Land Cruiser in, in this car's model cycle, this 300 series. I mean, the, the 200 series went for nearly 14 years or did go for 14 years. Whether or not the 300 goes that long, that's a very long model cycle. Um, but I would expect we'll see a hybrid version, you know, within the first few years of the car. Um, Toyota's not racing ahead in electrification. Other Other brands are seem to be more hell-bent on electrification than Toyota does, but Toyota seems to be pacing itself. It's doing, you know, it's made some announcements about electrification. Um, I think that they'll be slow to electrify vehicles like the Land Cruiser, Mm. Um, but there's already a trend in the States where um, some of the big pickups like the F-Series truck are getting electrification and Toyota has some rivals over there for that vehicle, so they'll probably introduce an electric option into their, you know, heavy-duty pickup in the States, Mm. which might be a precursor to us seeing something here further down the track. Mate, I really do appreciate it. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, David. Thank you for the chat. And that's Jed Bulmer, who is the motoring editor for the RACQ, the motoring club for Queensland, who do some great work along the way. And he continues that with a wealth of background and an understanding of how things are evolving, changing, improving and reflecting consumer needs. You're listening to Overdrive. If you haven't looked at our Facebook page, Overdrive City, recently, there's a few things that I think might take your fancy. There's a picture of a meme where a man in a hotel room rings reception and asks for a wake-up call. The receptionist says, you will never finish your car restoration project. That is the sort of wake-up call that many of us need. And we also posted a picture I took many years ago where we went out in our rally car for a run and took the young children along. I told them that rallying was about having fun in the dirt, and the picture shows the three-year-old beside the stationary rally car as we worked on it. He was digging in the dirt. That's not quite what I meant, but he was certainly happy. And finally, I took a picture of the Audi e-tron, large electric SUV, parked next to two E-type Jaguars. The difference in size is astounding. And that's on our Facebook page, Overdrive City. You're listening to Overdrive.
There is one issue that is sure to bring out some strong opinions from frustrated and perhaps even angry motorists. It's the visibility or lack of visibility of line markings. Some years ago I did some research on this issue and it's not the colour of the lines nor how new the paint was. It's the nature and quality of the materials that went into the paint. Where are we now in terms of new innovations for road surfaces? The technical advisor for the Omni Group Direct is Dave Jones, who joins us on the line now. G'day, Dave. Hi, David. What did you do on the roads, uh, the Great Ocean Roads, in terms of luminosity? We've taken a photoluminescent material that was developed for safety in the highly regulated building safety sector. And we've put it into a variety of line marking and pavement marking paints. So on the Great Ocean Road, we have a a demonstration application of photoluminescent paint on a a rebuilt section of road at Mogg's Creek. And uh, even since that time, and that was only put down late last year, we've made some exciting advances uh, in that and can do even better nowadays. Luminescence, where does it get its energy from? From the lights, if your lights shine on it, then it gets that energy and illuminates more, glows a bit? Well, that's, that's essentially right. It absorbs uh, daylight, so it's a way of uh, storing solar energy in the, in the case of road line marking paint. Um, so the paint itself absorbs uh, daylight and then slowly emits that light. And in the case of road line marking, it emits that uh, light uh, well into the night. So when the sun first goes down and, and into the evening and uh, moonrise, it's really quite bright and it gradually loses that uh, absorbed light. In fact, it can be seen by by, uh, by people uh, along that road um, up to as late as midnight or the early hours of the morning. So it's quite, quite an exciting innovation because it has the potential to uh, replace or, or reduce the need for electric lighting on roads. Uh, and that's uh, one of the reasons why it was put at Mogg's Creek. They wanted to reduce the, the number of streetlights on the rebuilt section of road at this uh, particular intersection on a bend, and uh, photoluminescent paint um, provided a way to do that when the road was at its busiest um, in the evenings. So it is dependent on the amount of sunlight during the day, cloud cover, even the moonlight? Uh, it is. Well, it's, sorry, it's not uh, dependent on the amount because... Over the duration of a uh, of a day, there's more than enough light, more than the paint can actually store. So even on a uh, overcast day, there's still sufficient light. It's also important to note that it also has glass beads in the surface, so it still reflects headlights when it's directly being trafficked by a vehicle during the night. The advantage really comes through on bends and, and intersections where vehicles are turning, where headlights by design point straight ahead, but the path of the vehicle is around the corner. So it's suitable for very dark locations where there's no streetlights, lights near the road. The glass beads are very clever. It doesn't just bounce the light, it actually spins it around and sends it back towards the driver. Correct, yes. You're doing more research in this area? Yeah, we certainly are. So we uh, received an Australian Government Road Safety Innovation Fund grant, a three-year grant. Uh, So we received that in July last year uh, because the Australian Government saw the opportunity to improve nighttime road safety and rural road crashes on, on dark roads by this technology. So we received a three-year grant to ad- advance the performance of photoluminescent lines uh, and uh, we're also using it in road signs uh, as well. And the road signs are, are much the same. They have a very efficient photoluminescent sheet mounted on, on aluminium 
standard sign symbols on the front, but also a standard reflective layer on the front, um, but they operate much the same. When directly lit by headlights, the, the road sign can be seen at around bends, so what we call Chevron alignment markers or the, the arrows on bends, the, the, the yellow and black uh, arrowheads that go around a bend. Uh, a rider, as in a motorcycle rider or a driver, will better look ahead and they'll have higher visibility. They'll be internally illuminated by photoluminescence. Modern cars, particularly electric vehicles, are looking for immense efficiencies and they often have low-resistant tyres, which will not going to handle like a low-profile tyre. And from another perspective, they make a different noise when you go over them that perhaps that may alert the driver as well. Not in every circumstance, not perfectly, but nonetheless one point of it. Are they some of the parameters that may be, a pro- may be applied or may be thought of in this area? It's a really interesting point that you raised, David, because um, you know, someone just recently discussed with this, the fact that autonomous vehicles, so self-driving vehicles, the technology uh, is going to be um, have some assumptions built in about the quality of the road so that the, the algorithms in the vehicle that determine how quickly it breaks is going to have to be some certainty about the quality of the road surface to enable those algorithms that, that say that I have to break this fast, um, I guess can be trusted. Ah, do I understand it, that if, a, say, an autonomous car is running along and constantly assessing the friction of the road but then makes decisions about how hard or how what gaps it can leave or doesn't have to leave, it then moves almost immediately onto an off-ramp or something. If those conditions are significantly different, it could be making the wrong decisions. Sort of thing you're talking about? Yes, that's, that's the sort of thing. And I think it's particularly the case if you're going through country roads uh, where there's very uh, windy roads through mountainous areas and bends where conditions change very rapidly. And as we all know, just driving around, you get some sections of road that are very slippery for whatever reason. It might be the application or the age or something that's happened or the, the forces on the road surface from the vehicles that are using them. They will change um, the, the quality of the, the road surface over time. So there'll be greater onus, we, we think, and that was the context of this discussion around road authorities being able to um, ensure that their road surfaces meet minimum standards, in particularly these high-risk locations where... If it's not right, not even an autonomous vehicle might be enough to to prevent uh, a crash actually happening. Lovely to talk to you, Dave. I appreciate much of your time. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity, David. Pleasure talking to you and your listeners. And that is Dave Jones, who is the technical advisor for the Omni Groups of Companies. And I think, as you heard in that last comment there, that there are quite a number of factors of which they are involved in, but they all come together as a more complete package of understanding how we can reduce road accidents and the tragedies that that can occur from them. You're listening to Overdrive. Citroen C3 brings some character and flair to a crowded small SUV segment. It has two-tone colouring that highlights the fog lights, external mirrors, the air bump door trims and roof. It has unique styling that carries through into the interior with a definite French flavour. Overall features include a 7-inch touchscreen with smartphone mirroring, sat-nav and the air bump door linings are an excellent way of protecting against car park bumps. The C3 hatch is powered by a 1.2 litre petrol engine. It's paired to a six-speed automatic transmission driving the front wheels only. Transmission is a little jerky around town, but the engine is willing and economical. Safety is a focus with reverse camera, driver alert, autonomous emergency braking, 
lane departure warning, speed sign recognition and automatic headlights and wipers. It's priced from around $30,000, but there are driveway deals that your local dealer can discuss. The Citroen C3 is an urban SUV for those buyers looking for something with individuality and just a little bit different. I'm Rob Fraser. You're listening to Overdrive. When we did the road test, and we're just preparing the video now of the Tesla Model 3, we found that to change the speed of the windscreen wipers required two steps on the big screen. That is, focusing on the screen, finding the right button, and then doing it again. Is this an example of marketing over practical understanding? Who better to talk about that than our good friend Brian Smith? G'day, Brian. Hi, David. It was incredibly frustrating, even though I accept that people will learn how to use the screen better, but to still have to do a two-stage touchscreen test to change the speed of the windscreen wipers. In Germany, actually, a, um, a Tesla driver got a uh, €200 Euro fine um, because... Uh, he touched the this touchscreen to adjust his wipers. So even though he sort of uh, you know, claimed that look, it was um, you know a thing I needed to do, an essential thing, the judge basically said it didn't matter whether um, that why the driver was looking at the touchscreen while driving, only that he did so. So uh, he was not able to um, reverse that finding. So so this sort of thing is ergonomics are a very tricky thing in cars, I think, and. Uh, just sort of shows the immaturity of Tesla, perhaps, as a, as a car maker. It is immaturity because, as we say in the video, they do have things like you can set the screen up so every time you touch the, I think it's the indicator stalk, it makes a fart sound. Yeah. And you can even then make it under different seats in the car. <laughs> I think he also did something where um, you could watch videos and, uh, and stream things and play games on the t on the touchscreen. So we'll announce so you, you know we've ported Doom or whatever into the car. They are building up to autonomy, I presume, but it's the interim stages. And you and I have talked about how their autopilot isn't an autopilot. Now, the BMW touching at the hand and, and that, it was a cumbersome, horrible thing, but I was driving some Mazdas the other day that do not have a touchscreen. They have a little dial to move the thing around and, and be able to pick things. You know what? I found that much safer. Mm, okay. Because my hand dropped to it and I knew what I had to do without having to look at it. So you saw it on the dash rather than on a separate screen? It's on the screen, but you can move it. You know, you try pressing a screen when the car's going. Oh, touchscreen, crazy. Touchscreen is a crazy idea. Your hand bumps around. Yeah, you're moving. I found I, I had to stabilise my hand while I'm doing, put my thumb on the, on the edge of it to stabilise my thing, so I press the button. This is while you're driving. You're dividing your attention. Look, David, probably the past 20 years you and I have, have really noticed that that cars are becoming much more sort of um, standardised, you know, so that between the sort of European where's the indicator versus the, the Asian where's the indicator, but the rest of it, all pretty, the ergonomics are all pretty sorted out. You know, you, you can mostly get in most cars and be pretty certain of what stalks and buttons will be doing and, and what they'll look like and how they'll function. 
Mm. It's uh, it's when companies sort of divert from this as some kind of innovation, I think that they run into problems. It's innovation for innovation's sake. And the thing, Brian, always good to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, David. And it's Brian Smith, whom we'll catch him up next time. You're listening to Overdrive. Hyundai updated their Kona range early 2021 and included the N-Line in two versions. The top one, the premium, we're talking about today. The key feature in the N-Line is a 146-kilowatt, 1.6-litre turbo petrol engine, teamed with a seven-speed dual-clutch transmission and all-wheel drive. It has a sports-tuned chassis featuring a multi-link rear suspension. It's surprisingly nimble around town and good for a long trip away for a weekend or a day through the mountains. I found myself wanting to go for a drive simply because it was fun. The dual-clutch transmission is a little jerky around town and not a favourite of mine. The ride is, is sporty, balanced and with a degree of compliance. Some of our goat tracks we call roads in Sydney, the Kona provided a comfortable ride. As you would expect, it's also jammed with the same level of comfort and safety features as the Highlander, and on these cold days, the heated front seats are a bonus. There's a bit of competition in the smaller, sporty segment. The Kona is well positioned to grab its fair share. The Kona N-Line Premium is priced from around $42,500 plus the usual costs. I'm Rob Fraser. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Jed Bulmer, Dave Jones, Brian Smith, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for the great help with the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify or there's those programs and more information at drivenmedia.com.au or of course you can go to our Facebook site Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.